Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to our first podcast of the new year. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery field. This podcast is in furtherance of that mission, and on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Each January, the publication Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Weekly publishes a review of the best and worst from the previous year and hopes and fears for the coming year, all from the different perspectives of a select group of professionals. We here at the CCB are proud to have been included in that group for the past few years. And joining us today to talk about some of these perspectives is Allison Knopp. In addition to her role as editor of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Weekly and other journals from the Wiley Network, Allison has written about substance use for more than 30 years. As a freelance writer, she has written articles for Addiction Treatment Forum, Addiction Professional, and Filter, among others. She also served as a keynote speaker for the CCB's first awards dinner in 2015. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Allison. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And I did love speaking to your group. I remember that. Um, it one seems of the like things, a long time ago. It does. And, uh, and I say that you've been writing for 30 years. I say that with love because um, I've been doing this since 1988. So <laughs> I've been around. Yeah, yeah me too. Uh, a, little, a little longer even. <laughs> This year's group of stakeholders for the best and worst and hopes and fears includes Dr. George Koob, director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, Marvin Ventrell, CEO of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, Zachary Talbot of the National Association for Medication-Assisted Recovery, Cynthia Moreno-Tui, executive director of NADAC, Sue Tao from CADCA, Bradley Sort from uh, Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer of Care and Treatment Centers, and Dr. Keith Humphreys from Stanford University. That's a really significant group, and let me say that I'm humbled to be a part of that group of national stakeholders. The you first well. issue that struck me was how these stakeholders all had very different perspectives, showing the complexity of issues that we face as an industry. As someone with your finger on the pulse of the industry, is there anything from the submissions from your stakeholders that really surprises you? Not really, um, because uh, they had uh, a whole year to live through this. Although it's obvious that for some of them, the uh, importance of, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, remote treatment or uh, medications is more important, less important for others, just highlighting the divisions and the type of treatments, which is certainly decades old. But um, I think there's also more of a push for, um, you could call it harm reduction, but it is really treatment in terms of meeting patients where they're at. And your comment spoke to this very articulately in saying that, you know, people need to be given the, use the word autonomy, which is a very, uh, very heavy and important psychology term in wellness, in, in mental health wellness. And they need to be given the autonomy in their pathway uh, towards recovery. Um, and for too long, patients have been viewed as 
you know, uh, we know better than you do. And we're going to tell you what treatment is best. And if you don't do this, we're going to kick you out, which is wrong. And it, it still happens in many places um, that they say, this is our program. You follow that. And I don't always agree with it, but I understand in privately funded uh, organizations, they can do what they want. They have, uh, they can have their own program. Someone chooses the, into that. But when somebody is paid for on public dollar and they're being forced into a certain pathway, I do struggle with that because it may violate their rights. And it certainly right. uh, violates their autonomy. Public dollars should be used the best way possible and let someone choose their pathway. Also, we're talking about health care. Even though it's public dollars, you would not tell somebody on Medicaid that this is the type of chemo they have to have if they have cancer. There's such a thing as patient participation in their care, and that applies to addiction treatment, despite the you know ever-present uh, menace of law enforcement and uh, other problems like losing custody of your children or losing your job or all of the other things, which wouldn't happen to somebody with cancer, but do happen to people with addiction. We tend to see um, an individual's issues or problems from our perspective, rather than asking them what what the problem is and what they want to solve and what they want to attack. That's also another issue which um, ran through this year, uh, this past year, because of COVID, mm. when um, people could no longer say, well, we just want to fill all of our beds, for example. That, that was not an option. Um, they had to have, it had to be safe. It had to be physically distant. And um, in terms of medications, this was perfect for opioid use disorders because um, medications are usually the best way to start at least getting somebody through withdrawal and um, away from craving. Of course, they need psychosocial treatment as well. Um, But very quickly, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the Drug Enforcement Administration relaxed regulations for buprenorphine. Induction could be done without an exam by telephone, which is amazing when you consider the history of this country in the past 10 years getting rid of all opioids. And um, methadone could be dispensed by OTPs for, quote, less than stable, unquote, patients for two weeks, which, as you know, is a lot of medication. Yeah. I mean, um, when I, my last uh, job in an OTP was individuals, although the feds would allow for 30 days of take-homes, for somebody who was appropriate, uh, the organization I worked for did not feel comfortable doing more than two weeks at a time. Um, and so that we could at least have a contact with somebody. Um, and it may be a brief contact just to check in, but it was it was really about safety. Um, so I guess uh, we're kind of in the middle of what my next question is, is kind of turning the tables on you and, and your opinion about the best and worst for 2020. Ah, well, Uh, To start with the worst, because it's just been uppermost in my mind, there have been no conferences. I have made so much headway in my understanding of this field over the past 35 years by talking to people in person, by going to conferences, by the off the record discussions that go on, by, you know, with different groups. There's ASAM, there's ATOD, there's um, 
NADAC, there's NACIDAD, there's these wonderful groups. And you just don't get that same information as a reporter. That's mainly a a journalist's perspective. But I'm sure for people in the field, it's the same thing because they don't, I mean, have you been to the Zoom conferences? It's very difficult. It's, you know, you don't really, you don't sit around and talk to other people. You watch somebody talking. Uh, so I recorded well, you know, I recorded one for some uh, a group in North Carolina that their conference obviously got canceled. Um, and when they replayed it, there was a hack because a lot of Zoom stuff had been getting hacked. Oh, um, a few minutes and some rap music jumped in the middle. Um, but yeah, there's there's other pitfalls with that. Yeah, um, but the best is um, you hear this from everybody. Dr. Koob said it in his comment. Um, he he said it all year. You hear it even from the most resistant OTPs that were afraid of losing their reimbursement without having patients coming in every day, that actually the dropout rates are lower, the engagement rates are higher. Patients love being able to talk to counselors remotely. And counselors say that, even counselors who work in OTPs say that they are actually getting to do more counseling in terms of talking to the patient about what they're feeling and isolation and everything, instead of just being policemen, you know, checking the drug tests. Speaking of Dr. Koob, who I, I am a big fan of, um, I'm glad he was he participated because it's always important to, for us to be reminded of the massive problems associated with alcohol. Sometimes we forget that and get focused on one thing over the other, but alcohol has been there, has been a large problem forever. Um, you know, so misuse and dependency is often cast aside. But from, from your perspective, uh, is the industry saying increasingly focused on opioids to the detriment of those struggling with other substances? It's following the money. So when, um, you know, the block grant is less than $2 billion and it has been for decades. Then when in 2017, there was this infusion of $1 billion in STR, 80% of which had to be spent on opioid use disorder treatment that's where the money went. And then um, there was SOR, which followed, same amount of money. Yeah. However, no longer the 80% rule. So a ton of that money was used to purchase naloxone, um, which was great for emergent and great for people who needed to be rescued. But unfortunately, it was handed out like candy, as a source told me for a recent story. And it was left. I mean, it was just, I would go to conferences and people would say, here, I, I have all this naloxone, take some. And I said, I live in the woods. Who am I going to give it to? The, the raccoons? You know, but um, there is, so opioids were a focus. Now that grant has been extended to include stimulants. Mm -hmm. um, so, because, so it's all following the money and uh, stimulant use disorder treatment is supposed to be the only really good treatment for it is contingency management. Mm -hmm. But the federal government has said that that is a kickback. And so even though it's not, it's a it's a treatment tool. Um, the federal government views it as an inducement to come to treatment. So can't be used despite the fact that we're on the verge of a the stimulant use disorder epidemic. 
Um, sorry if I'm rambling. Well, that's okay. And several years ago when I worked in an OTP, the Yukon Health Center um, did a contingency management study with several uh, patients at all of the clinics of the agency that I worked for with tremendous results. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been proven to work. I mean, you know, the experts have all of the data, but. As we look at opioids, Zach Talbot of the of NAMA Recovery, National Association of Medication Assisted Recovery, had a really powerful submission. Um, he really spoke from the heart. It was a little different than the usual format, yeah. but he spoke uh, or wrote with such passion that you could, you could feel it. And I couldn't agree more with his perspective. Um, but what about his inclusion kind of jumped out at you? I mean, it was so powerful from beginning to end um, and, and so simple and accurate uh, that I couldn't help but pay attention to it. You know, we need to make sure that people are healthy and safe when they're getting a medication. Well, um, you know, he uh, runs OTPs. He dispenses buprenorphine. He um, is also as the head of NAMA Recovery, he's by far the only real patient advocate for patients with opioid use disorder. And so, you know, he's not defending the OTP field here. He's not defending the OBOT, the office-based mm -hmm. opioid treatment field. He's talking about how patients need to be respected and patients' rights need to be respected. And he has been at the forefront of advocating for patients, especially in terms of confidentiality, mm -hmm. because methadone patients were the only ones who still really had that. And SAMHSA got rid of it basically in August with their final rule. And there's more losses coming um, of confidentiality. And this is terrifying to methadone patients. Um, so, you know, he, he, it, it wasn't a rant. It was just stating the facts. And, you know, he knows that, uh, he knows that he ruffled a few feathers in the, in the, in the field there. <laughs> and, and, I, you know me, I've got no problem with that. You know, you, you point <laughs> out the elephant in the room and I certainly, I actually reached right. out, um, to him, we're going to talk offline because of Good. my history of Good. teaching best practices to non-medical clinical staff around the country, best practices in, in over the years that I have an interest in talking to him um, and kind of getting some ideas. So, um, and he's also, I know the, uh, an ICNRC individual, he's the president yes, of the board is. of Georgia. So that would also give me some more contact with him. Um, I just thought it was, was incredible because of my special interest in, in best practices. And certainly any best practice should include what the person receiving services feels is best for them. So I've often wondered um, about OTP staff because it's, it's no secret that there are plenty of counselors and OTPs who are not huge supporters of methadone, which has always been, you know, th this makes your job so hard. And, you know, uh, I guess it was about eight years ago, NASADAD, uh, the, the Association of State Directors mm -hmm. of Substance Use Disorder, um, came out with a statement um, saying, we believe we endorse medication-assisted treatment. And I thought, well, wow, is this 25 years later? What? But in fact, so many of the members have... Uh, 
you know, treatment centers who are their constituencies who still don't quote unquote believe in methadone and buprenorphine. I mean, even though methadone has been there for 50 years, buprenorphine for 20. And, you know, it's like when we entered an opioid use disorder epidemic about 10 years ago, my first thought was, thank God, because it's the only substance use disorder we have a treatment for that works. But you have to get the field engaged. That's why the work you're doing and educating them is so important. I could even see that when I spoke to some of your members um, in 2015. And they approached me afterwards and were like, yeah, this is so interesting about medications. It's like, yeah. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, I've been saying, and I go on the record by saying that um, the opioid crisis started 60 years ago. Not just over the last 15 or 20, um, uh, because people were dying back then. And when we forget them, it's it, it's disrespectful to them and their families and friends. And I say that from the heart because I lost a brother to an opioid overdose in 1990. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm so sorry. And at the time, he was just a, just the a junkie who died in the oh. big picture of things. Nowadays, we look at it very differently. So I, I, I pers- have a personal struggle with that. But but. Um, you're right. I think that we we need to focus more on the effectiveness. Five or six years ago, I was at the New England Institute of Addiction Studies in Worcester, Mass, and uh, Michael Botticelli was still the director uh, uh, at that o- point. Yeah, um, ONDCP. Of ONDCP, yeah. and and he spoke to this crowd of about 300 people, and he said, "If you don't believe in the efficacy of medication-assisted treatment, that's fine, but do us all a favor: keep your mouth shut." And that were pretty much his words in that direct. Um, I got some pushback from the off some individuals at ONDCP who claimed he didn't say that, but I said he was speaking uh. to <laughs> in Massachusetts. In right. his own state. So uh, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, I also was very interested in Professor Humphrey's contribution. It was very brief, but he made two very strong, and they're both emotional points that weren't warrant further discussion. The meta-analysis by Dr. John Kelly, who's a brilliant researcher on the effectiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous, and also the culpability of the Sackler family um, in the explosion of opioid-related deaths. Um, The directness and simplicity were very important. Um, Any specific thoughts about uh, Dr. Humphrey's perspective? Well, my thoughts about what he said about the effectiveness of Alcoholics uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Kelly's work, that is absolutely true. And Humphreys himself has worked on some of those studies. And Kelly has been just diligent about this. I have I, I heard him speak about this at NATAP a couple years ago. He's uh, he doesn't stop talking about it. That it's it's a kind of support that. You don't get any place else. And I, I, I've talked to top psychiatrists about it. I mean, they all say, yeah, we tell our patients with alcohol problems, go to a meeting. They get to stand up and say who they are and get validation. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not always perfect. Some of them may be on buprenorphine and this may not be something that they can share, which is wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, it's, it's it's so important, especially in the... Uh, like in the world of Twitter, which seems to me to be full of people who just want to trash Alcoholics Anonymous all the time and, you know, haven't bothered to read a study or call Dr. Kelly. So um, as as for the Sacklers, I'm not totally on board with that. Um, 
you know, I, I, I mean, I, I agree that it's wrong to promote a drug which is addictive just for the purpose of, of um, making money. Across the country, we yeah. do see governors like uh, legalizing recreational marijuana for the exact same reason, however. So, you know, I, and I think that what's happened with the demonization of prescription opioids is people in pain no longer can get relief. Mm-hmm. Um, the demonization of the Sacklers and Purdue and many other companies has also been for money because they're are just lines of people who want so much money from them that they all have to declare bankruptcy. And who wins then? And to to uh, Professor Humphrey's point about AA, when they presented the study, and they, were, they were very clear on what it says. That is, it's as good and sometimes better as some treatment options, um, but they never said it was the greatest thing since no, sliced bread. No. But what's amazing is a lot of the media around that, when they did it, either trashed the study or said that AA is the greatest thing ever in the world. They did a whole podcast talking about what what some some media said about it versus what it really said. When you it, it, what what it really says is what we all know, backed up by science, um, by research. Um, that it it works for many, not for everyone. Those it works for, it works for really well. Um, which is, you know, it's very short and simple. But I think the field um, and, and those with a maybe with a bias towards AA that that's their preferred route, kind of blew it up into something that it's not. And that wasn't done by Dr. Kelly, Dr. Humphreys. It was just kind of done by interpretations of that. Um, and I have some feelings, as you can imagine, on the Sacklers. And they they echo yours in a fashion because I think with what we're seeing is now the government or governmental entities can point at the Sacklers and say, we're charging them, so we solve the opioid problem. It's no different right. than in 19, they said, well, we in 1964, we passed the Civil Rights Act, so we solved racism. Right, right. When we know there's so much more um, there's no quick fix for either. And I think to some degree, you know, the Sacklers have culpability. There's no question about that. But I think that they're being made the scapegoat for, for a much larger issue that they didn't create. They're part of, but they didn't start and, and it won't end with them being punished. And not only that, the um, getting rid of the abusable form of Oxycontin, which Purdue did, um, was correlated based on time with the increase in heroin and um, then illicit fentanyl because um, the Oxycontin that was reformulated could no longer be crushed for a quick high. And um, it's not people in pain who went out to the streets to get injectable heroin and illicit fentanyl. But, you know, you don't get a lot of money by suing street drug dealers. So, the basically making these safer drugs illicit um, led to the increase in overdose deaths due to people getting stuff that they didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying people didn't die from um, overdoses of Oxycontin. They right. did, especially when they tampered with it mm-hmm. because it's an extended release drug. And as such, like methadone, 
it's a good opioid because it releases itself slowly into your body, lasts a long time. And I'm not, I'm not promoting it. I'm not saying it's great. You know, I'm just saying that um, it was it, eliminating it didn't do any good for the opioid overdose problem. It's a, it's a medication that when used appropriately was very helpful for what it was designed for and for the length of time it was designed for. Absolutely. Um, as we close, I'd like to give you the opportunity to do a little bit of marketing. <laughs> Remind our listeners why they should subscribe to Alcoholism <laughs> and Drug Abuse Weekly. Well, it comes out 48 times a year, eight pages, all exclusive original reporting um, by me and uh, Gary Enos, who writes The Bottom Lead, who is also one of the best, one of the only great addiction reporters left. Um, and, you know, I, I do have to say that people who were used to seeing uh, opioid stories um, in the mainstream media, they probably saw what happened in March. All those reporters were taken off opioids and put on COVID. Right. And, um, you know, it, it, it will come back. I, I think Dr. Humphreys has predicted, and he's a pretty good reader of these things, that by March, opioids will be back in the limelight. But it's important to, you know, stay up to date with what's going on in Washington. And I talked to, uh, I, you know, I had a half hour interview with Dr. McCants Katz, um, an exit interview uh, in December. Um, I did um, an important speculative story about who could be heading ONDCP and who could be heading SAMHSA, talking to insiders. Um, And if you subscribe, you get access not only to the current issue as soon as it's out, but all of the archives going back years and years and years. And it's easy to search. I do it myself when I'm looking for stories that I've written. And um, it's easy to print out the PDFs of what you want. And the best way to subscribe, there's a long, complicated URL. But if you use alcoholismdrugabuseweekly.com, that will take you to the site. And there will be a little subscribe button on the lower right When you get to that button, make sure you subscribe as an individual, not as an institution, because if you subscribe as an institution, they will think you are, you know, a $5 billion pharmaceutical company. And it's just, um, this is just the way medical publishers set Mm -hmm. things up. So, you know, subscribe as an individual and you will get um, access. It's all online. So... And I know Gary, and I, I, I love reading his writing. He's uh, really straightforward and a genuine good guy. And um, it, it's, it's great that you get the, you know, the access to Dr. McCants, Cat, uh, because her and I, uh, we share, we're both alumni of two schools together. Uh, we're oh, both really? alumni of Eastern Connecticut State and the University of Connecticut. So she okay. got her undergrad where I where I did. Um, and, and she went to medical school where I went to social work school. So, uh, uh, I have to, you know, that's a pride for my, my educational history. Excellent. (laughs) Any final thoughts to add? I just want to thank you for inviting me. And, you know, if, 
anybody has any questions about subscribing, feel free to share my email with them. Okay. Um, and feel free to share any of the issues with people who are interested so they can see what it's like. All right, great. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Allison for joining us and also express our attitude, our gratitude, excuse me, for her being a supporter of the Connecticut Certification Board for a long time. We're humbled each time we are included in ADAW, and we take that very seriously. We appreciate everyone who is listening, and don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. Join us starting on January 27th when we talk to Dr. Greg Boris from High Watch Recovery Center about protocols that protect clients and staff from COVID-19 in an inpatient environment. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.